Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to, welcome to the New Books Network and Judaic Studies. Today we have Brian Ogren, the Anna Smith Fine Associate Professor of Judaic Studies in, uh, in Rice University. Uh, welcome, Brian, to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. We usually start out these interviews by uh, asking our guests to introduce themselves and how they came to write their current work. So. Oh, yes. Well, so my area of study is Jewish thought, and much of my focus has been on the transmission and transformation of Kabbalistic lore in the early modern period. And prior to this book, I had published two monographs on Kabbalah and philosophy in early modern Italy. Now, in regard to this book, uh, several years ago, I came to wonder whether there were any Kabbalistic influences on early North American thought. So I began to explore, and and to my surprise, I encountered a figure named Judah Monis, who was a Jew presumably originally from Livorno in Italy. So there was even an Italian connection there. Uh, Monis had converted to Congregational Christianity in 1722, and this was with the backing of the famed Puritan minister, Increase Mather. And then he went on to become the first full-time Hebrew instructor at Harvard and the first person to publish a Hebrew grammar in North America. And what was interesting to me uh, was the fact that he wrote discourses upon his baptism, which were full of Kabbalistic language. So I started to explore more. I looked forward in time at the influence of Monis's discourses on a figure named Ezra Stiles, who was the seventh president of Yale College. And then I started looking backward in time from Monis to increase Mather's own views on Jews and American messianism. Uh, and then in exploring Mather and his famed son, Cotton Mather, whom I'm sure a lot of people know, Uh, I looked through the Mather family papers at the American Antiquarian Society, which is in Worcester, Massachusetts. And in the process of looking through their papers, I stumbled across a beautiful Kabbalistic manuscript in English that has an anonymous author, and it had never been studied before. And so I started investigating, and as you know, I came to the conclusion that it was authored by the famous early Scottish Quaker George Keith. And so really at some point, the Kabbalistic story started to tell itself. And this this whole picture gave me a sense that the narrative of the religious founding of North America is quite rich and complex. Fascinating. Um, uh, I forgot to mention the title of your book. It's uh, Kabbalah and the Founding of America, the Early Influence of Jewish Thought in the New World. Uh, this book usually, this book is, uh, ranges between the dates of 1688 and 17, uh, the 1780s, I believe. 
but I guess be- before we get into the history, could you please explain for the listeners what actually is Kabbalah and how does it fit into Jewish mysticism overall? Sure. Um, this is really an interesting question uh, because, as you may know, the word mysticism in relation to Kabbalah itself is quite contested. Um, Mysticism taken in its most basic sense of an unmediated experience of the divine, or some people like to claim that mysticism is an idea of unitary consciousness. And this can certainly be useful for comparative purposes with Kabbalah involved. So in the context of my book, for example, it can help in understanding how Kabbalistic ideas relate to early Quaker notions of the inward light, and I use it in that way. Uh, But overall, I prefer to see mysticism as one small piece of the Kabbalistic puzzle. Now, to get back to your original question, Kabbalah itself means reception. And this is the reception of a a tradition handed down. Um, In the medieval period now, it it took on more a, a broader form as a network of exegetical systems. Um, This is including theosophical elements, discussions about the divine nature of language, usually Hebrew, although sometimes not, uh, language in general, and then something known as theurgical elements related to something known as ta'ameha mitzvot in Hebrew, which means explanations for the commandments. And now it's important to note that when Kabbalistic lore was adopted by Christian thinkers, it lost much of this later element, Ta'amea Mitzvot, this uh, explaining the commandments, and it became more of a tool for explicating creed, uh, such as ideas of Trinitarianism. And this this is the form that Kabbalah took for most of the thinkers discussed in my book. And what are some of the most foundational texts of Kabbalah? So uh, there really are two main works utilized by the thinkers whom I analyze. Um, And the first is a book known as Sefer Yetzirah, which is the book of formation. Um, Scholars date this book sometime between the second century and the ninth centuries. It it depends on who you ask. It's quite a big range there. Uh, It's very speculative. Um, But it's traditionally attributed to the biblical Abraham, uh, and it's held to be, uh, traditionally it's held to be written down by the second century rabbi Akiva, and it's a rather short, quite enigmatic treatise, Uh, and while it may not be a work of medieval Kabbalah per se, um, it became a foundation stone for Kabbalistic ideas for theosophical ideas, the nature of the divine, of the Godhead, uh, and also for notions of the the divinity of the Hebrew language. And then the second text, I said there are two that my thinkers were looking at. The second real foundational text is uh, Sefer HaZohar, or the Book of Splendor. And this book scholars date to the 13th century, probably coming out of Spain. Uh, but it's traditionally attributed to the second century Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who was actually a student of Rabbi Akiva. Uh, And this is also a very enigmatic collection of texts, and it's it's much longer than Sefer Yitzira. It's mostly written in Aramaic, 
Uh, although nowadays we can find many translations of this fantastic text. Um, and actually some of the more anthropomorphic portions of the Zohar were translated into Latin in 1677. And it's unsurprising perhaps that these were some of the more heavily discussed sections in the American colonies. Before we get into the uh, actual chapters of the book, in the introduction, uh, you mentioned a uh, famous correspondence between Jefferson and Adams, in which I believe in the 18, I believe in 1813, around October, November, they have this that they have this letter exchange in which Jefferson, I think, tells Adams about one has to you know go through the entire Hebraic corpus into. Uh, in order to what he calls separate the diamond from the dung. Uh, yes. So you sort of charge Jefferson and Adams with this term eliminative reductionism. What, what do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, I do indeed. Um, so it's, I mean, this is a fascinating exchange between Jefferson and Adams. It comes to be very uh, famous because it's partly it partly relates to Jefferson's uh, ideas that eventually become his now famous Jefferson Bible. Um, really, what happens there is Jeffersons and Adams are reading this guy named Yaakov uh, Johann Yaakov Brooker. He wrote a book called Critic the Critical History of Philosophy, which was published in 1791 in English. Uh, and there, Brooker makes reference to Kabbalah. He makes reference uh, to Jewish ethics or Hebraic ethics, as he calls them. And he makes the statement, I want to quote him here. He says, ethics were so little studied among the Jews from the time of the Second Temple period onwards, he's talking about. Um, and so Jefferson writes to Adams, in, as you said, in 1813, discussing this text specifically and the ethics of the Jew, of the Hebrews or Hebraic ethics or the Jews. Uh, and he makes the claim that Jesus attempted to reform Hebraic morality by stripping away all that was unnecessary. Uh, but so Jefferson then takes this line of argument even further by stating that the gospels are full of elements like Platonism, like Aristotelianism, like Gnosticism, which he blatantly calls nonsense, he uses the word nonsense. And he seems to link Kabbalah and, and Jewish Kabbalistic texts, also Jewish philosophical texts, with these ideas. And he thought that if all of these elements could be stripped away, then there would remain what he poetically refers to, as you said, diamonds in a dunghill. Um, and I call this stripping eliminative reductionism, as you noted. Um, Jefferson basically thought that he could separate the wheat from the chaff. And then Adams, for his part, he responds largely in agreement to Jefferson. And he writes, I, I want to quote this because it's a, kind of a funny quote. He says, to examine the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Kabbalah, Yitzirah, the Zohar, the Kuzari, these are different uh, Hebrew texts or uh, uh, Jewish philosophical texts as well, and the Talmud of the Hebrews would require the life of Methuselah, 
And after all his 969 years, it would be wasted to very little purpose. This is Adams. So you can see here that Adams is even sharper in his language than Jefferson in terms of seeing all of this stuff as a waste of time and as nonsense. Now, um, I think it's important to note that I used Adams and Jefferson here somewhat as a foil uh, to look at the bulk of my book, which is really looking at their predecessors who take a very different approach to Jewish texts. Uh, their predecessors, whom I focus on and who we'll discuss in a bit, uh, they really sought to include extra biblical texts in their understandings of what they saw as truth. And some even saw themselves as a part of the Kabbalistic tradition. So going back to the, uh, from post-revolution post America back to, uh, back to colonial America in the 1680s, uh, who was George Keith, and what textual evidence do you have to subscribe to him, the author of the Antiquarian Manuscript? Yes, so George Keith is a fascinating figure who, it depends uh, what time period you're asking about, but he was at one point a Quaker, at one point he left the Quakers, and he became an Anglican, at one point he created a schism in the Quaker church, um, where he had his sort of own Quaker faction. Uh, he was an important Scottish thinker who made his way to England. He studied at a place called Ragley Hall with a famous uh, philosopher named Anne Conway. Um, he was attempting to convert the Conway circle to Quakerism, which he actually successfully did. But while he was at Ragley Hall, uh, he also learned Kabbalah. He learned a very specific type of uh, Christian Kabbalah that was very popular amongst Anne Conway and um, some of her friends, Mercurius von Helmont and others. Um, he took this Kabbalah with him and uh, he brought this to the American shores. He was... He made his way to America. He was the surveyor general of East Jersey at a certain point, which, you know, this was a Quaker enclave. Um, and it's here on the American shores that he got into some of his controversy. Now, um, this, there, there was another part to your question, right? You asked what, uh, uh, about this antiquarian manuscript? Yeah, what textual evidence uh, is there to uh, ascribe oh, right, George, right. George, George so, Keith as, as the author? Yes, yes, excellent question. So um, this is quite complex, and it, it demands a little bit of visual understanding, but I'll try to do my best here orally. So... On the most basic level, uh, really the graphological and the orthographical evidence um, actually points to a certain guy named Christian Lodewick as the scribe. Uh, and I'll get to the connection here. In, but in fact, it's not in Keith's handwriting. It's in Lodewick's. And Lodewick, this guy Lodewick was an anti-Quaker former German who was residing in Rhode Island at the time. Uh, in the 1680s, uh, and he carried out a series of debates with Keith and correspondences with Cotton Mather. Uh, 
And in one of those correspondences, he tells Mather that he's sending him three books by Keith, along with one of Keith's manuscripts, which was written in 1688. And that is the precise date of the antiquarian manuscript that we have. Um, and this antiquarian manu manuscript was filed, not coincidentally, in the Mather family papers. So it stands to reason that Lodewick copied out the manuscript because it's in his handwriting and he sent it to Mather. Now beyond the uh, orthography and beyond the graphology, um, another piece of evidence that we can look at for Keith as the original author is an idea found in the manuscript. And I want to quote in the manuscript, he talks of Adam Kadmon, that is the first great or great Adam, otherwise called by name the heavenly Adam, the great high priest, and the bridegroom and husband of the church. Here he's talking about this uh, very complex idea of the first emanated being out of God, sort of an, a logos idea that he's taking from uh, Kabbalah, and he's connecting it to this idea of the first Adam, the great Adam, what he calls the heavenly Adam. Of course, he's uh, saying that this first emanated being is none other than Jesus Christ. And this is an idea that actually appears in a book called The Principles of the Most Ancient and Modern Philosophy of Anne Conway, whom I said uh, he had learned with, or the Anne Conway Circle. Uh, and this book of Anne Conway was published after her death in 1690. Uh, Conway, as I said, introduced Keith to Kabbalah. Um, it's an idea also that appears in truncated form in Keith's book entitled The True Christ Owned, which he wrote in 1679. And I say truncated form because in that work, there's no mention of Adam Kadmon, of this uh, Kabbal specifically Kabbalistic element. Uh, but it is there in Conway's work and in the antiquarian manuscript. And this is significant because it rules out the possibility that a separate author of the manuscript was copying Keith's 1679 work. And so to my mind, the best explanation is that Keith was the author of the manuscript and that he was writing an idea that he personally got from Conway. And uh, actually it bears mentioning also that Adam Kadmon, this idea of this first emanated being out of the infinite God, uh, is spelled idiosyncratically in the manuscript and in Keith's works. He spells it A-D-A-M, which is correct, and then C-A-D-M-O-N. In most of the works we look at, we see it as spelled K-A-D-M-O-N, but in Keith specifically, he uses that C spelling. Um, and uh, this notion actually is key to Keith's own brand of what has been deemed Christian Quakerism. I talked about this uh, sort of divide that he created problems in the, in the Quaker Society of Friends, uh, and it led to a schism with the Society of Friends as well. Who, who, who are the main ant ant antagonists on the other side of the schism, and what do they have against George Keith? and his appropriation of Kabbalah. Well, so on the other side of the schism, I mean, he, he really, he's uh, brought 
you know, he's brought to bear at the uh, yearly meeting in uh, both Philadelphia and, you know, it's sort of a concerted effort. Uh, and then also in London. So it's much more of a, uh, you know, sort of global concerted effort to condemn his way of thinking here. Um, and it's, you know, his idea here was that their, their idea here, at least, was that he uh, was focusing too heavily on the incarnate Jesus. Um, this started happening in the 1690s. Um, and, uh, you know, they had this idea that he was denying the sufficiency of this idea of the inward light. Um, and for Keith, for his part, he wanted to promote both this idea of the inward light and the incarnate Jesus uh, through, through, through ideas that are parallel to his musings on Adam Kadmon. Um, and really his idea here was that a cosmic Christ, uh, who is an emanated form of Logos, in turn illuminates the upper levels of the human soul, which uh, are taken to be the inward light of Quakerism in his thought. And he used, he actually, he utilizes the Hebrew term in several of his works, Neshama, for that upper level of the soul. Um, and really in an attempt to preserve the historical Christ, Keith claimed that Jesus was the only individual who had a neshama, a, uh, this upper level of the soul that was not emanated from Logos, but that he was carrying it as, as his core. Um, and this is an idea that he probably borrowed from Conway and it was brought to my attention by my friend Christian Mercer at uh, Columbia University of what uh, Conway calls the Logos Usios, or that's the essential word versus the Logos Proforikos, or the word expressed and revealed. Um, now, this whole idea did not sit well with the Quaker establishment just generally. Uh, and though some people like Daniel Leeds uh, did side with Keith, and uh, thereby that, that's what created this schism. It's, I mean, there were very few who came over to Keith's side, but there were enough to create sort of a minor schism here. Yeah. And what, and what, 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 what was it about Kabbalah that the Keith side, the, the Keith uh, side of the schism found so appealing? So yeah, here again, I would re I would point to the idea of Adam Kadmon. Certainly, this idea of uh, you know this first emanated being that can be equated with Jesus or a cosmic Christ, uh, and also the idea of the soul spark, the soul as a spark of the divine, really, um, which very highly resonates with the idea of the inward light, especially as formulated by Keith. So going on from the uh, the Qua the Quaker schism, you mentioned two figures, Cotton and Increase Mather, uh, con Congregationalist. Uh, what gripe did Cotton Mather have against Quakerism, and especially George Keith? 
Yeah, so Mather was a, uh, a pretty vocal person in terms of his uh, Cotton Mather here, I should say, to distinguish between the son and the father. Um, pretty vocal against, in, in terms of his polemics against Quakerism. He even uh, had several published works where he attacks the uh, Quaker establishment. Uh, he had a problem with the Quaker idea of the universal universality of salvation, uh, and right, this was the idea that whether one was familiar with the Gospels or not, there was this idea of the inner light that could be cultivated, uh, that could lead to an idea of salvation. Uh, and in fact, one of his treaties, his anti-Quaker treaties, he writes, and it's good to quote here. He says. I'm quoting him here, the Quaker holds that the Indians and Negroes and the pagans beyond China have sufficiency of grace and means of salvation. And right, for, for, for Mather, this is, was preposterous. Uh, now, in regard to Keith specifically, he saw this universal idea as translated into a concept of the inward light specifically, using this language. And in the same treaties, Mather writes about the, the Quaker in general, a Quaker believer, he says, he therefore holds according to what Keith adds upon it, he's directly referring to Keith, that the light that is in every man is sufficient to enable him to do any work acceptable to God, end quote. So really for Mather, it was blasphemous to think that one could come to salvation without exposure to the Gospels. And uh, this is not in the least because he's thinking that this made the historical Jesus and his passion play obsolete. So even though Con Mather writes all these polemics against Quakerism and uh, George and George Keith and his appropriation of uh, Kabbalah and Jewish, Jewish mysticism, you do mentioned in the text that Con Mather, in a certain way, does appropriate some aspects of Jewish mysticism for his own theological purposes. Uh, right, what, right. What, what, what were those appropriations, and how did it affect uh, his theology? Yeah, Mather, I mean, he's an interesting figure also. He, uh, makes a, he actually makes a lot of use of Kabbalistic texts. He was a copyist um, in many respects. You know, it's oftentimes it's hard to separate out what are his ideas and what are just the ideas that he's faithfully copying from others. But yeah, Kabbalistic ideas make their appearance all over his works. So for example, he uses a complex process of uh, Kabbalistic hermeneutics to link the name of God to wisdom. I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, um, but, you know, he equates God to wisdom with a big W. Uh, and in the process, he tacitly refers to Sefer Yitzirah. Um, this is through noting the 32 paths of wisdom. This is an idea that shows up in Sefer Yitzirah. And then he takes this idea of wisdom related to the name of God, and he links it to the Messiah, which he then naturally links to Jesus. So, right, Jesus is wisdom. Um, and he's using Kabbalah to do this. Um, in other places, he's interested in theories, uh, things like theories of resurrection as drawn from Kabbalistic sources, 
any is interested in Trinitarian readings of uh, scriptures, as are pretty much all Christian Kabbalists. Uh, but really what's interesting to me about Cotton Mather is that he only seems to be drawing on Kabbalistic sources filtered through other Protestant thinkers. So he's looking at Kabbalah, for example, as it makes its way into the texts of the 17th century English Orientalist John Gregory, or in the work of works of the Buxdorfs. Um, he never seems to consult the Hebrew texts directly or the Aramaic texts, and uh, it doesn't even seem to come through Catholic Hebraists. You know, he of course he would have a problem with Catholics. Uh, and, but in this way, he is strangely orthodox to a Protestant textual tradition, you know, so much for the idea of sola scriptura. Um, but this leads, and, and this leads to a lot of misreadings, um, like taking a statement of the late 11th century exegete Rashi, uh, who's actually very much known as a master of the simple reading of the Bible, and he treats Rashi, the statement of Rashi, as Kabbalah, and this is all because the 17th century clergyman John Spencer had written about Rashi and Kabbalists in the same sentence, and uh, Mather was getting confused here. Uh, but we can see from this example that Mather is not so interested in Kabbalah for Kabbalah's sake. Uh, and, you know, this allows him, though, at the same time to disregard things that he does not like or that don't fit into his worldview. And... He somewhat sardonically actually refers to these things as fopperies or rabbinic fopperies. Um, and an example of this, which harkens back to Keith, actually, is the uh, equation of God with light. He didn't like this idea. So uh, you were mentioning Jewish fopperies. And would another one be um, the idea or the notion of uh, reincarnation or transmigration of souls? and why was that a problem for Con Mather and uh, the Congregationalists? Yeah, so indeed, uh, you are correct that this idea of reincarnation was very important in terms of what these ideas of fopperies might be. And in fact, it's what led this guy, Christian Lodewick, to initially write to Cotton Mather about George Keith. And I was able to actually look up the quote. Uh, he writes to Cotton Mather, he says, because George Keith, as he told me last summer, favors the 12 revolutions or transmigrations of souls. Um, and then he goes on, he talks about Rabbi Yitzchak, a whimsical Jew. And he says, he, he goes on, he says that he perhaps learned this idea from the Turks perhaps from Pythagorean ideas of metempsychosis. And then I'm quoting again, he says, therefore, he is of late very fickle concerning the resurrection body. And this is what leads him to write to Mather. And then Mather picks up this line of thinking that, okay, this is a big no-no, this idea of reincarnation of souls. Who is this guy, George Keith? What is it that he's doing to Quakerism? How is this make, even calling itself some form of Christianity? Part of the problems that they have with this whole idea is one, resurrection, that it sort of flies in the face of resurrection. That is, you know, if 
you if there's an idea of reincarnation, then how do you account for resurrection at the end of times, for example? Um, and then another problem is this idea of salvation that, you know, reincarnation sort of gives people a chance to, um, you know, salvation, whether they are privy to the idea of the Gospels or not. And this was a big problem for Cotton Mather and his ilk. So going from the son to the uh, father, per se, uh, what was increases, what, what, what was increases Mather uh, relation to uh, Kabbalah and how did it differ from his son Cotton? So, yeah, Increase is interesting because he's much less textually based as his son is. Like I said, he's copying Kabbalistic ideas from Protestant texts. Increase is more interested in historical, historical developments and specifically this idea of known as Sabbatianism, which is a messianic movement um, that arose in response to a figure named Shabbatai Tzvi. Uh, and Shabbatai Tzvi was an Ottoman Jew who was born in Smyrna, which is modern day Izmir in Turkey. Uh, this was in 1626 that he was born. Tzvi then went on to learn Shabbatai Tzvi. He went on to learn Kabbalah. At a certain point, he met a Kabbalist in Gaza named Natan Levi. Uh, and this, this Kabbalist in Gaza was a purported healer of souls. And Sfi himself was suffering for what, from what might be deemed bipolar disorder today. Um, and he was hoping that this healer of souls, this Natan of Gaza, would be able to help him in some way. It's almost like a psychologist in some sense. But instead... Uh, this guy, Natan, would go on to convince Tzvi that he, his psychological states were actually messianic. And he would set himself up as Shabbatai Tzvi's Elijah, for lack of a better way of putting this. And word, would, word then spread throughout the Jewish world, also into the Christian world and into England uh, and into the colonies of this Kabbalistic Messiah and his Kabbalistic prophet, and most of this Sabbatian activity actually happened between 1665 and 1666. It culminated in September of 1666 when Shabbatai Tzvi made his way to Constantinople and he had this idea of converting the Sultan to Judaism and of ushering in the Messianic era. Uh, but when he got there, the Sultan had very different plans, obviously. He threw Shabbatai Tzvi into jail. Uh, he gave him a choice and he said, you know, you can either convert to Islam or you can lose your head. And Shabbatai Tzvi decided, decided to convert, to keep his head. Uh, and this created a huge crisis of faith throughout the Jewish world. But, you know, what's interesting for our story, sort of to come back to your original question, Increase Mather got word of these developments already before Tzvi's conversion. Uh, and this led him to a campaign for sort of his own, a new soteriology, a new salvation history that sought for the true conversion of the Jews to Christianity. He thought that if Jews were filled with such messianic fervor that was spurred on by this guy Shabbatai Tzvi, 
then perhaps they could can be con- be convinced to convert to Christianity, uh, and in so doing, trigger the second coming. Uh, and in 1666, the precise year that all this was happening, Increase Mather gave a series of sermons that eventually were turned into a publication that he entitled The Mystery of Israel's Salvation. So that's a little bit about uh, Increase Mather and his connection to this whole idea. Um, was there another part to that question? Or... I guess I, I guess what I'm wondering is uh, how did this view of uh, Sabbatian messianism, I guess, change the way certain Congregationalists or certain Protestant Christians saw America in the New World, in uh, their sort of role in uh, this new salvific space. Right. Okay. So yeah, the that's. Uh, really an interesting question because, yeah, a lot of this stuff does come out of increased Mather. Um, although the idea of America as a new salvific space, which is, is certainly his idea, and it's coming out of these treaties that are spurred on by the Sabbat, Sabbatian movement. Um, but this idea of America as the salvific space is not directly related to the happenings of Shabbatite Tzvi. It's uh, it arises much later in his disc. He, he has a dissertation concerning the future conversion of the Jews. He became obsessed with the conversion of the Jewish nation, what he calls the Jewish nation. The, fu- the dissertation concerning the future conversion of the Jewish nation. Um, and this was published in 1709. And there Mather states concerning the end of times as prophesied in the book of Revelation. He says, I'm quoting him here. He says, this is increased Mather again. I'm quoting the new heaven and the new earth, which God had promised. That is the new world, which shall begin with the resurrection will be another kind of world than what this, which we see is and has ever been since the fall of Adam. So, and in the later, later in the same treaties, he explicitly states that this new world that he's referring to is America which is part of the earth that has never been seen. So for him, it's, it's the point from which shall begin the final resurrection and the end of times. And it just happens to be, to correlate in time uh, with this whole Sabbatean happening that spurs him to convert the Jews to Christianity. So going from there, you briefly mentioned the figure Judas Manus in the uh, in your opening statement. Um, how does uh, Judas Manus play into Sabbatianism and um, his conversion from uh, Judaism to Congregationalism? Right, right. So Judas Manus was converted under the direct auspices of Increase Mather. Um, Increase Mather was already old at this time. Judah Monas was converted in 1722 uh, in a very public baptism at Harvard. Um, Increase Mather at this time was the former president of Harvard, uh, and he sort of took Judah Monas under his wing. Um, and um, Sabbatianism itself 
was not used to convert Judomonas per se, I would say, but it certainly, as we've mentioned here, set increased Mather on a specific course to convert the Jews. And then so when Monas presented himself as a convert some 56 years later after the uh, Sabbatean crisis, Mather took this as a sign that the final eschaton was beginning. Uh, and then again, out of the new world, a Jew was being converted to what he sized the proper form of Christianity. And then the idea was that this Jew would then go on to convert what both Increase Mather and Judah Monis himself referred to as his brethren of the flesh, that is, other Jews. Um, and really, the idea here was that this would create a wave that would culminate in the return of the saved Jews to their ancestral homeland. Uh, and ultimately the return of Christ to that same space. It's almost this, uh, the first, the very beginnings of a form of Christian Zionism, even if you want to call it that. Um, he had this idea that the beginning of the end was happening, and it was sparking forth from this salvific space of New England. So you end the book by introducing a figure called Ezra Stiles. And who who was he and what was his role in contributing to the exchange between uh, Jewish mysticism and American Protestantism? Yeah, Ezra Stiles was, is one of the more fascinating people that I look at, actually. He was an important congregational minister as well. Um, he's a little bit later in the story, though not much. He was the seventh president of Yale College, uh, and Stiles had read Monus's baptismal discourses, which, as I said, are full of Kabbalistic lore and a Christological key in some sense. Um, and then, as we just talked about also, Monus's entire conversion was quite messianic in its character, and this all spurred Stiles to learn more and to seek out Kabbalistic sources in the original Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, and so, for example, in 1761, he wrote to Benjamin Franklin. Uh, Franklin was then in London, and he was asking Franklin to procure for him a copy of the Zohar because, you know, none was had on the, in the New World. He thought maybe on the European continent he could uh, somehow get a copy of the Zohar. He eventually did get a copy which was apparently full of his annotations, of uh, Ezra Stiles' annotations. Uh, and it was a copy that was owned by the famed British uh, Baptist minister, John Gill. Uh, and unfortunately, its traces were lost. It hasn't been seen. It, it was seen about 100 years ago by a scholar named George Foote Moore. Um, I've looked all over for it. I haven't been able to find it anywhere. If there are any listeners out there who might know where it is, please get into contact with me. Um, but in any case, right, Stiles was a fascinating character, not only because of his deep erudition uh, and his text study, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, but also because he, he learned with Jews uh, and he would frequent the synagogue in his hometown of Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, he met with six different rabbis who were coming through town as emissaries, who were fundraising, uh, and he learned Jewish texts with many of these rabbis, with many of these emissaries. He 
even learned some Kabbalistic texts uh, with a few of these, in particular Sefer Yetzirah with some of its Kabbalistic commentaries and the Zohar. And this type of exchange really makes uh, Ezra Stiles a unique character. And we have the records of a lot of this in his papers at uh, the Beinecke Library at Yale. Um, and finally, it's important to note that upon his commencement as president of Yale, he gave what he called a, an oration upon the Hebrew literature. Uh, this is, this is a, a speech or an oration which he had originally written in a very strange Hebrew, actually. And within the oration, he makes ample reference to Kabbalistic literature and to ideas. And he makes a plea that I want to quote for you in full because it's quite interesting and telling. He says, this kind of learning, he's referring to rabbinic learning, but also Kabbalah in here. He says, this kind of learning is worthy to be sought after and transplanted into the colleges of America. With desire, I have earnestly desired to see it illuminating the scholars of Yale College and also the literati of different cities in these going downs of the sun, these ends of the world. So in essence, he wanted all learned individuals in the new world to learn Kabbalah. So I guess maybe going past the purview of this current book, um, does this initial um, reception of Kabbalah uh, to Protestant uh, Christianity have any reverberating effect uh, maybe in the to the 18th or 19th century? It does, although they're not uh, certainly not as strong as a figure like Ezra Stiles would have wanted them to be, for example. Um, so this sort of type of universal Kabbalah uh, that he saw, you know, being transplanted into the colleges of America, as he puts it, uh, sort of peters out in a lot of ways. Um you know, there are hints of it here and there. Um, a woman by the name of Hannah Adams, who um, was a famous author in the Americas in, you know, the immediate subsequent generation, makes reference to it in her history of the Jews. Uh, she makes reference to Shabbatai Tzvi. She even makes reference to Judah Monis in some ways. Um there are a couple of other minor figures who make reference to these things, but sort of as any type of mass movement or any type of, uh, uh, you know, something with staying power, it doesn't really last beyond this generation. Interesting. Uh, so I believe that's all the time we have for today. But before we go, we usually like to ask our uh, guests uh if they have any future projects, and uh, if so, uh, what are they? Yeah, so currently I'm working on two very different projects. They're also very different than this book, but um, they're different from each other. One is a book-length project that deals with Kabbalistic representations in contemporary film. 
Um, and another will be a rather lengthy project, maybe several books even, dealing with Jewish concepts of love. Uh, and I'm beginning that project by looking at early modern concepts, especially related to commentaries on the biblical Song of Songs. Well, we yep, look looking forward to that in the future. Uh, so um, I guess we'll just end the interview here. Uh, thank you, uh, Brian Ogren, for sharing your um, current book, Kabbalah and the Founding of America. Thank you, and thank you for 